Welcome to the Morning News Podcast for Monday, June 15th. We begin with a look ahead to this week's agenda at City Council. We catch up with 770 CHQR City Hall reporter Aurelio Perry with details on a possible decision as early as Tuesday on the controversial Green Line LRT. Next, we look at the disturbing issue of elder abuse in our nation, which impacts a staggering 1 in 10 Canadian seniors. We get advice from a lawyer on what steps can be taken if you think a senior in your life is being subjected to abuse. Two Black Lives Matter protests took place in Alberta towns over the weekend. We speak with an activist who attended both rallies and get her views on the issue of racism in our province. A few days into Phase 2 of the reopening in our city, we catch up with Dr. Ted. Jablonski to hear what this means for clinics and for those on wait lists for elective surgeries. It's a business giant helping out the little guy. We get details on the FedEx hashtag support small initiative, which aims to lend a hand to small businesses struggling through the pandemic. And finally, we hear the story of the next community champion nominee, a long-term care center that helped one Calgary family stay connected to their mother during her final days. Well, it looks like it might finally be Green Line LRT Decision Day at City Hall. We're joined now by 770 CHQR City Hall reporter Aurelio Perry to tee up what council's dealing with this week. Hi, Aurelio. Hi there, Sue. Did I hear you laughing? Uh, yeah, because uh, the <laughs> Green Line's going to be coming up tomorrow. Oh, it's, it's not today. Oh, okay. Well, We're... It's, it's part of today's meeting, but okay. uh, they've, for some reason, they've set a specific time for it at 3:45 tomorrow afternoon starting so that and you know with the number of amendments this looks like something that's going to go into the evening tomorrow unfortunately so we might even be able to talk to you on thursday and you know maybe get some. <laughs> still going on <laughs> yeah. wow yeah. that's crazy yeah it lives a little bit they've just they wanted to set a, i guess you know to give people a better sense of uh, when the discussion happens, they want to set a particular time for it. Uh, they've got the, you know, the, a bunch of public hearing items today, land use items today, and a, a couple of other type topics that might, uh, uh, you know, bring in some time limit, time, not time limit, sorry, mm-hmm. but will take some time, such as like boundary review. It's a minor boundary review, but uh, councillors are always fighting for their turf. Mm-hmm. And some may not be happy with the city, what the city clerk's doing with changing some of the boundaries for next year's election. Uh, if it's a minor tweak, she's allowed to do it. If it's a major boundary review, then there's more uh, input from the councillors. And uh, that's where you get the councillors uh, fighting for their turf, you know, wanting to keep areas that maybe are solidly in their support and not wanting to pick up areas that uh, may not be seen as friendly to them. Mm-hmm. Press four for the morning news. Are you here? Okay. Yeah, who's doing that? I don't know. We're hearing somebody push. Somebody's pushing somebody's buttons, and we don't have their hands on the phone. I think it's council pushing. It our could buttons. be right. Somebody wants to derail this. So I'm wondering if you can give us a bit of a refresher. When was the last time? Was it Ward 11 that we had some major boundary changes, or has it been more recent than that? Yeah, it was before the last election. Now there was changes with Ward Seven where. Uh, well, they, they had come up with a ward boundary review, and uh, they had agreed to it, but then the mayor some, suddenly got involved and sent it back for more study. He got involved, and it got changed, and um, Drew Farrell lost some suburbs, gained more inner-city stuff. Uh, Sean Chu wasn't happy because he was he was basically getting kicked out of where he lived, uh, representing hit the area where he lived. So he wasn't happy with that. So there are some changes, again, with Ward 11 and 8. 
uh, a little bit with seven as well. Some of those changes are occurring. Um, they're also getting today the uh, citizen uh, satisfaction survey. They do it twice a year, and this is the uh, spring one, uh, which they conducted uh, before the lockdown. And then I think there was uh, some questions uh, during the lockdown as well. They get an update on that. And the city guides council usually, sometimes some members of council guide themselves on decision-making on the results of the survey. That's also a up. And then, of course, you know, the biggest issue is the green line. But we may also get an item added. Uh, the mayor was talking last week about anti-racism, and he used the phrase on how to become more active anti-racism. He was bringing forth a notice of motion. There's nothing listed on the agenda, but that could be added when they start the meeting today. And I'm sure there'll be maybe a bit of an update on uh, what occurred uh, on the weekend up yeah, in the Northeast. No doubt. Yeah, so much damage up there. I'm sure they will at least take some time to talk about that. So, Aurelio, as we look to tomorrow then with Green Line discussion, what what are they supposed to be doing? Is this going to be a final decision? Is is that what we're expecting anyway? Yeah, this will set the alignment for the first stage. And uh, at committee, they had voted to go to 16th Avenue, but uh, that committee didn't allow for amendments to be made like they could present the amendments but these are coming all to the meeting the council's meeting and those are amendments that you know you get some a group of aldermen that are sorry councillors saying that let's stop the train before it crosses the river let's stop it in eau claire uh, and then there's others like shane keating says well if you're not going to let it cross over the river then uh how do we make it go further south, use the resources that we would normally would have used to go further north? Let's go further south. So there'll be some of that at play when they uh, start the discussions uh, tomorrow. Good stuff. Thank you so much. And obviously it's something we'll be following throughout the week. Thanks, Aurelio. You're welcome. That is 770 CHQR City Hall reporter Aurelio Perry. It is World Elder Abuse Day today, an issue that's been one of the more disturbing storylines to emerge from this COVID-19 pandemic. A seniors advocacy group can age, stating they've seen a tenfold increase in reports of elder abuse since the crisis began. To talk about this terrible issue, we're joined by lawyer, author, blogger, podcaster and speaker Jasmine Daya. Hi, Jasmine. Hi, thanks thanks for having me. Well, thanks so much for joining us once again. You know, can you first just start off by defining elder abuse for us? What exactly does that mean? Elder abuse can take various forms. Uh, You know, when we think of abuse, oftentimes the first thing that comes to mind is the physical aspect. And while that is certainly a type of abuse that can be inflicted on an elder, there are various other forms that people generally don't think about. For example, the psychological abuse that can occur, emotional abuse, sexual abuse, financial abuse, and even just basically neglect. Who commits elder abuse? Give us an idea of... I'm assuming it's a family member? You know, that's a very good question because there's a lot of assumptions when we talk about elder abuse um, by individuals, and it's not always accurate. Uh, Yes, there are definitely times when family members uh, commit abuse, as atrocious as that sounds. Um, Oftentimes, from that perspective, it can be financial. Um, So financial abuse is where a a person that's in uh, a position of power, authority, trust, uh, takes advantage of the other individual. Uh, so, and, you know, in, with, 
with respect to an elder, it could be that they are scamming them out of their own money. Um, but it's not just family members. So individuals at long-term care home facilities, for example, um, are in these facilities because they require care and at those facilities they have access to 24-hour care so it could be people at those facilities such as personal support workers nurses um, but it's not limited to facility-based care either it could be individuals in the public within the community that take advantage of individuals and in fact um, there's various statistics that show uh, in alberta that over a third of seniors have been a victim of financial abuse wow that's terrible. Okay, so, and, and it, obviously it is World Elder Abuse Day today, which sadly means it's enough of a problem that we've had to create a day for it to try and bring awareness to this problem. So do you have sort of stats for us? I mean, that's, a, that's, a, that's horrible that we're seeing that here in Alberta. Do you have any other sort of numbers that you can explain to us what we're seeing and, and even right across the country? Yeah, absolutely. So the month of June is actually a seniors month. Mm -hmm. So it is the whole month where we recognize our seniors. And this day in particular, as you pointed out, is World Elder Abuse Day, which is a day, it's the only day in the whole year when the whole world voices its opposition to the abuse and suffering inflicted to some of our older generations. Um, In terms of statistics, uh, the pandemic has produced various statistics and while i don't believe that the pandemic has created abuse within the elder community it has definitely exposed something that is happening Mm -hmm. and it's something that people are talking about we've seen that in canada um 80 percent approximately 80 percent of deaths are linked somehow to long-term care homes and again i'm not saying that you know, because an individual is a long-term care home, there's automatic liability on that home that has resulted in the death. But, you know, it's something to talk about. It's something we need to look at. There's been outbreaks at about 300 homes in Ontario, 270 homes in Quebec. Uh, These are staggering numbers. And in Ontario, uh, the Canadian Armed Forces were brought in to assist with the long-term care facilities. They they produced a scathing report about the observations at these homes. And while this was in Ontario, there's long-term care homes all over Canada. And we need to be looking at, okay, can this really just be limited to Ontario? Or is this something that is happening straight across the country? And we're not even acknowledging it. Mm-hmm. It's time to acknowledge it. Agree. You mentioned acknowledging it, and I'm wondering, uh, because maybe the seniors in our lives might be embarrassed if they've gone through something like this, maybe afraid, maybe they're suffering from dementia or just have troubles communicating. So what are the warning signs we can look for in the seniors in our lives that maybe they've been uh, you know, suffering from abuse? You've nailed it correctly in stating that a lot of individuals, uh, you know, they're embarrassed. There's also fear of retaliation. So if you speak out uh, against your caregiver, for example, there's fear that, well, is that caregiver going to be able to care for me? Uh, Sometimes they can't speak. Sometimes uh, they don't know who to go to for help. So the signs that you look for with our elders, uh, because as you correctly pointed out, sometimes they can't speak for themselves or speak out. uh, You want to look for uh, changes in behavior, such as depression or anxiety, if they are fearful around certain people, if they become socially withdrawn. There's also obviously unexplained physical injuries. Uh, when you're looking at neglect, you want to look at 
um, food, clothing, and other necessities, loss of weight, change in hygiene, the sudden inability to meet financial obligations, or if you see very unusual financial withdrawals from accounts. Jasmine, you're a lawyer, so talk to us a little bit about what can be done if we think there is something going on. Is there something from a legal standpoint we can do as family members or somebody who's seeing this and, and, and just isn't really quite sure what steps to take? The first thing you want to do is go to the police. Some people feel, you know, do we need to report this to the police? Absolutely. The police will, uh, you know, file a report, do some sort of investigation. If we don't speak out, we can't stop it. Uh, so you want to go to the police. Seek medical assistance for the individual that has been abused, whether it's taking them to a hospital or to their doctor. You want to make sure that from a health perspective, our seniors are taken care of. If they're at a facility, it's important to talk to the people at the facility. Sometimes the people in charge of the facility may not know um, unless you bring it to their attention. Uh, There are also various community groups within each city, within each province in Canada that are there to assist. So contact them also to see what can be done and what supports they have available. Um, There's also the ability to contact a personal injury lawyer uh, that can assist and perhaps obtain compensation for pain and suffering, but leave us to the end. We want to go through all these other steps and make sure that the individual that has suffered from abuse is taken care of. Is there any national, uh, I guess, association or any, uh, you know, place uh, resource-wise you can go to that would be like a one-stop shop, or is it better to just start searching provincially where, where you live? If you do a simple Google search, there will be a whole bunch of websites that will list all the different uh, associations and community services available. And really, it's um, delegated to each province. Uh, So definitely, uh, Alberta will have their own host of services. Yeah, just looking it up, and it is, in fact, albertaelderabuse.ca is the website for here in our province. And anyone who's concerned about a loved one here in, in our community, you can just click there and they'll help you find the closest agency. And as you said, call 911 if you're really, if you're concerned and there's there's a serious worry about a senior in your life. Absolutely. Okay, thank you so much for joining us, Jasmine. Always appreciate your time. Thanks for letting us know about today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It is World Elder Abuse Awareness Day. That is lawyer and advocate Jasmine Dea. Look for those signs because I know that particularly when we talk about scams, for example, Mm -hmm. not just seniors, but people are, you know, hesitant to come forward or, you know, for whatever reason, they they don't want to be embarrassed. Or, as Jasmine mentioned, they might be fearful that their caregiver will leave them or they'll ramp up the violence right. and they don't have that opportunity to escape. I mean, if, if we've learned anything through this pandemic, it's, you know, sometimes what terrible situations our seniors can be in. So we need to be better advocates for them all around, I think. And again, albertaelderabuse.ca is a great website here locally. Two Black Lives Matters protests took place over the weekend in small Alberta town. Saturday's protest and rally in Innisfail was originally cancelled because of an onslaught of online bigotry. So how were the protesters greeted? Joining us to talk about both rallies is entrepreneur, influencer and activist Taylor McNally. Hi, Taylor. Hi, how are you? Excellent. Thanks for joining us. So you went to both rallies, right? How was Innisfail? Because you and I talked at one point and there was even a Facebook page created to try and, you know, get people going on the wrong day at the wrong time to this town. Yeah, and I think that's still 
Um, I mean, I don't know how. We have thousands of people who have reported the page in Mary Benson. It's still up there. So if people show up on the 20th, I, I think that's going to be a thing. <laughs> well, maybe they'll have a second um, rally. Who knows? How was it, though, in Innisfail? It was really good. Um, there was a little over 300 people, I think, that showed up. Um, and, uh, yeah, just uh, a lot of support, a lot of people that, of course, in these in these rural areas when they're getting a lot of media um eyes on them that there's a lot of people coming out um, from the city but there was still a lot of locals there you can tell a lot of people want change people shared their stories who are from the town who are from in uh, rural areas and you know wanting change out there as well so um, yeah it was really good Uh, of course we had a little trouble at the end um, but uh, not enough to ruin the day (laughs) Uh, talk about the trouble this is something that I've not heard of Oh, well, of course, you know, one of the reasons we're going out to these rural areas is because we know there's a lot of racism. There's a lot of um, people who are against any change out there. You know, why change something if it's not broken in their eyes? Um, so we had uh, a couple dudes on their bikes show up. Luckily, they waited until the end of the event. Um, obviously, they don't want to cause too much of a commotion during it. They just want to seem like they're coming to hang out, have a smoke. What's the big deal? Um, and they just started revving their engines. They started yelling, all lives matter at people. They started, um, I tried to stay out of it for the most part, but there was a huge crowd around them. Uh, RCMP was trying to get them out of there. So, um, yeah, it's just, it's interesting. <laughs> Taylor, why is it so um, important? Why do you keep going to these rallies and these protests? Why is it important, especially to go into the smaller rural areas in our province? Uh, well, I lived in Cremona, Alberta, and I also lived in Didsbury, Alberta. I lived in Black Diamond. Um, when I'm going into these towns, a lot of the times I'm the first colored person they've ever seen uh, in real life. And... Um, Growing up in an area where there's maybe not a lot of people of color around you, you you don't really get that education. You don't get called out when you say something wrong. Um, Nobody really knows um, how to speak to us, so to speak. Uh, So I I think it's a good idea to get out there and get the info out there because we're definitely not learning it in schools. Um, You know, we learn a little bit here in the city, but out there we don't even learn any of it. Um, So to just share information, uh, provide resources. There are people of color in these towns, and a lot of the time they don't even feel safe enough to come up and share their story at the protest, um, which is really sad. So we want to be there for them and show them that they're not alone, um, that we hear them, that we see them, and this time nobody's getting left behind. Taylor, uh, George Floyd was killed uh, almost three uh, three weeks ago, and his services yeah. are now done. And we've se- uh, seen so many rallies across North America and across the world, for that matter. But the Black Lives Matter, uh, it seems like this time out, uh, when people are standing up and saying that we have to have change, it's different. What do you think the difference is, and in, in, in why did it take till 2020 and, and this incident? What, what made it different? Um, man, you know what? Um I'm not even sure what made a difference. I don't know if it's because people are just fed up and there was enough voices to stand up and say this is not okay. Um, police brutality, uh, unarmed black men being killed all the time. It shouldn't take, you know, you know, Breonna Taylor, it shouldn't take two months to put uh, an officer in jail or in custody after he's absolutely murdered somebody. Um, it shouldn't take two months to look into a story like that and get late charges. Um, but I think there's just enough voices this time around the world. I think there's 19 countries right now that are protesting. Um, 
And, you know, we really can't let that momentum die at this point. we got to keep going. There's already changes in Halifax. They're just announcing, you know, $300,000 that was supposed to go to armored vehicles for their police force is now going into um, anti, anti-black racism um, incentives and uh, mental health resources. Um, so changes are happening, and we just need to keep that momentum going, keep uh, our voices being heard, and keep the story going out, keep sharing information, because even as a black woman, you know, I grew up here in a very predominantly white surrounding that I there's so much I'm learning myself and it's just mind-blowing that um, even myself I didn't know a lot of these things a lot of this information and so if I don't know that guaranteed there's a lot of people out there that don't know this stuff so it's really important to get a lot of the information out yeah you know and even just in this time we've been talking to you two texts in saying all lives matter and then someone saying just because I live on a farm doesn't make me a racist and and you're not saying that and I don't think you know anybody's saying no. that that's not the point I think the the problem here is that people just hear what they want to hear and then shut down so what's the message that yeah. you and and you know every who's really trying to promote this Black Lives Matter movement, what's the message that we all, and especially we white people, need to hear right now? <laughs> well, I mean, and it's not... They definitely think it's very much black against white and that it's just black lives. Um, at the end of the day, this is just the momentum to shine light on anybody oppressed. You can be um, you can be black, you can be Asian, you can be um, Latina, um, you can be a member of the LGBTQ plus community, mm-hmm. you can be a disabled human, you could be um, you could be a woman who's feeling oppressed in your workplace. Maybe you're not getting that raise that your male counterpart has, and you know he's doing a lot less than you. Um, this is just um, putting the word out for everybody and standing up for um, basic human rights and civil rights. Um, and I think uh, anybody claiming all lives matter and who are upset with, um, you know, white people getting shot by police, too, you should absolutely be out here standing with us. I'm not sure why there's the divide there. So um, it, it really is a movement together. And we um, um yeah, we're becoming united. It's kind of a beautiful thing. As many as All Life Matters out there, um, there's there's um, many more, you know, on, on, on for the cause and yep. doing the right thing right now. Taylor, over the weekend, a Calgary-based gelato company released a flavor um, of uh, gelato. <laughs> are you familiar with this? Okay, so they, they recently released... Are, you know about this? Okay. Uh, oh, yeah. They released yeah, some gelato, and they're, yeah. they're, uh, I want to say it was a misstep because their hearts seemed to be in the right place called Black yeah. Lives Matter Gelato. They uh, soon pulled it. They had a graphic mm. with with people wearing masks that, says, I, that said, I can't breathe. This was obviously yeah. a company that, again, wanted to do right. So I'm wondering yeah. how, how uh, as somebody yeah. who's been at these rallies, who's somebody who's very much behind mm-hmm. the cause, how can a company make a difference without being offensive or doing uh, you know something yeah. that's going to incite anger? I think yeah, I think it's a really hard line to walk on right now. You know, I'm always somebody who tries to see all sides of the situation, and especially right now, um, there's a lot of people. There's a lot of different information going out there. People don't know what to do. They want to help, but they don't know. Um, in this case, he really did try to do right. Um, I, I don't know him personally. I've met him and his wife. They do a lot of stuff in the community, um, and. Um, I just, you know, his statement afterwards, I, I, I accepted it. I accepted the apology. Um, I think if there's no room for redemption, then why is there um, a chance for anybody to change, um, so to speak? So we need to, you know, we need to be giving these, um, these companies uh, information. But if they're wanting to do, um, 
anything for the black community, you know, reach out to the black community, ask how they can help. Um, there's lots of different donation links that you can send into, you can post for your followers. Um, they can also, um, they didn't use a black artist for that. Um, so they should have, you know, reached out to maybe a black artist who probably would have said the same, right? Let's do something else. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, but yeah, we just need to be in constant communication. Don't just jump the gun and just, and just do things. Um, definitely be in constant, uh, constant communication with the black community on how to help. We have a ton of Facebook groups out here. We have, um, I, I run, uh, rural Alberta against racism, the Facebook page online. Um, and we're always posting resources and links on there. There's lots of info, lots of resources. People just need to do their yeah. homework and, and get educated and, and let's all work together. I totally agree with you. Thanks for joining us, Taylor. Love your perspective. Thanks. Thanks so much for having me. Have a great day. You too. That's Taylor McNally, entrepreneur, influencer, and activist. 908. Uh, you heard Brenda talking about this in the news. Some sad news. Roy Little Chief, Siksika politician, advocate for Indigenous rights, uh, died Thursday, I believe it was, at the age of 81. Oh, it's crazy, the legacy and the family mm -hmm. legacy when it comes to uh, to this chief. In incredible. Anyone who's spent time in Calgary has probably seen him, met him at an event out and about. He was so big in the community. Little Chief was a recipient of the Queen's Golden Jubilee Medal. He was also a very central political figure since the 1960s, in fact. Former chief of the Six Sicca, uh, he actually, you know, his maternal grandfather, Eagle Rib, signed Treaty 7 back in 1877. Yeah. So a long and rich history with the Six Sicca nation for sure. Incredible. Yeah, it's a piece of our history. It is. And it's, it's sad, you know, and even members of the Siksika community saying every time they lose an elder like him, they lose a little bit of their history. They lose stories and legends and all that wisdom that their elders carry. And then they are considered knowledge keepers. Yeah, absolutely. So that was a big impact to, to our community as a whole. Researchers from the University of Calgary are launching a two-year investigation into the relationship between COVID-19 and children. What will they study exactly? To find out, we're joined by professor and researcher at the university's coming school of business, Dr. Jim Kellner. Uh, what are you uh, studying there, Jim? Because I tell you what, obviously COVID-19 in focus, uh, what is the connection to children that you're going to be looking at specifically? Well, we know, of course, that children haven't been severely affected with getting really bad disease for the most part, um, at least not compared to adults. Um, some children, however, do get severe disease, either the direct kind of COVID infection or, or these unusual manifestations where things come up after, after COVID infection has passed. So one of the things we'll be doing is studying those children who are uh, sickest with disease and uh, be doing a really sort of deep dive into studying their immune system their genetics and their response to the infection and, and that'll be <clears throat> part of the study that we're doing uh, province-wide. Dr. Kellner, is there any sort of, a, you know, any evidence that you've found so far that might, you know, give you any indications as to why kids don't seem to contract COVID the way adults do and the seniors for, in particular? Yeah, so it's a million-dollar question, and it's, it's not known for sure. Um, there are there's some speculation that children are biologically different, and that they don't have the um, same number of the cells on the surface of their uh, lungs and respiratory passage that seem to attract the uh, COVID-19 virus. And it may be that those are cells that develop more throughout life and just aren't present as much in children, so they're just not going to get it as badly. That's one thing. It may be also that it, it's related to them being exposed to other versions of uh, 
coronaviruses that have uh, given them some immunity. Um, and it may be um, um, other reasons as well we just don't know yet. So we certainly hope to understand that better with, uh, with our study that we're going to be doing. Dr. Kellner, before uh, you know, we, we got too deep into COVID-19, the coronavirus crisis, we were all panicked, uh, particularly about the children, because as we call them, um, you know, unofficially germ factories, it seems like if there's ever a flu, they're getting it. So this is considerably different uh, than other viruses that we faced over the past uh, years and years. Yes, it's especially different than influenza, because with influenza, where, you know, we had a pandemic, a worldwide pandemic, H1N1, just over a decade ago, <clears throat> children were a big part of the transmission of that. And with influenza, um, the typical thing you see is two peaks in life. One peak in the first two or three or four years of life where you get a lot of disease and hospitalization and death. And then um, it, it tails off and then you get another peak um, in the elderly. And so that's the typical thing we see with a lot of respiratory viruses. It seems, however, even with other coronaviruses like um, SARS back uh, 15 years ago, that it, it doesn't affect children quite as much. And so, so that's definitely a different thing. However, the role of children in both having the um, COVID-19 virus and potentially being able to pass it on to adults, that really still isn't understood all that well. It seems that children are not... Um, on an individual basis, all that likely to uh, pass on the virus to somebody else, even if they don't have symptoms. But one of the challenges is children have so many contacts with uh, other children and adults and especially older adults. And so even if on a one-by-one basis, they're not all that likely to pass it on, there's so many more opportunities in regular life for them to pass it on. And that's mm-hmm. one thing we need to understand better as well. So, Dr. Kellner, as a researcher, as a doctor, when you decide, okay, we, and you and your group, we're going to do this big sur- survey, this big research paper, yeah. how, what does that look like? How do you do it and how do you get the kids involved in the study? Right. Well, thanks for asking that. And we have, um, there's really three main uh, areas that we're going to be studying. The, the, the biggest and I think most important area that we're going to be able to try to study is, is looking at children who have actually been diagnosed with COVID infections, as well as those who are tested but negative. Um, and just getting a, um, asking a large number of those children to participate in a study of their uh, immune response, their antibody response to COVID over a couple of years. So in Alberta, with our great contact tracing um, system that we've had, we've actually diagnosed uh, COVID-19 in over a thousand children. It's, it's just that only a small number of them have actually had to be admitted to hospital. Most have had mild disease and they were the contact of an adult and um, who had disease. And so we want to contact um, a thousand children and ask uh, their parents and them whether they'd be willing to come and get a small amount of uh, blood sampled over the course of a couple of years, every six months, to be able to see what their immunity looks like um, um, and how long it persists. So we're going to be using um, uh, public events and um, and uh, uh, mailing out letters to people who have potentially um, who could potentially participate, and then contacting them and hoping that they will. So that's a big part of the study. The, the, the other part of the study um, in doing the deep dive of looking at kids who have been sicker, mostly we'll be contacting kids when they're being cared for in the health system, either in hospital or in clinics, and uh, directly contacting them. But that's a lot of organization to get that going. We're just up and going with that the last, uh, the last week. 
And then we'll be looking at the health information that's collected on all these kids um, who have been tested. And there's thousands, you know, tens, over, over almost 20,000 children who have at least been tested for COVID. And we'll be um, looking at to see how many doctors visits they've had, how much medication they've been put on, how um, how their health has gone over the course of a couple of years comparing before and after COVID. So it's, it's three big three big parts of it. There's I have, uh, there's well over 30 colleagues and um, quite a large number of staff who are assisting in this, and we have colleagues in Edmonton working on it as well. So it's a real big, what we call multidisciplinary effort to try to get this done. So the two years, is it standard to have a two-year study, or is it because this is so new that we really want to get down to the bottom of it? So it's a bit of both. Um, some things brand new takes a while to come to understand, and we definitely want to get some early information on seeing what it looks like for immunity right now. We hope to have some information on that over the course of just the next um, um, few months. But then we do want to study it in the medium term and see because what's been the response to COVID at this stage, the immune response to COVID at this stage, and how does that persist or not over the course of a period of time? So it is pretty standard to have to, um, it takes some time to get these studies up and going. And then it takes, um, you want to be able to study it and get sufficient information uh, that will help you see not only the very short term, but also sort of the medium term. And so a two-year period to gather information is pretty standard, but we do totally understand that there's a need to get some of our results known as soon as possible. So it would be the kind of thing where we'll, um, as soon as we have some preliminary information, we'll be able to share that and uh, hopefully that'll help inform some of the decision-making around what to do going forward. And then in the fullness of time, we'll have a, a much more detailed information that will um, hopefully help the overall understanding of COVID-19. It'll be fascinating to see what you find out. Thanks so much for joining us, doctor. Appreciate your time. Thank you very much. That's Dr. Jim Kellner, professor and researcher at the university's coming school of medicine. 720 on the morning news. Alberta's phase two of a reopening went into effect on Friday. What does this mean? For the healthcare sector, will we see any changes to doctor's appointments or elective surgeries? With details, we're joined by Dr. Ted Jablonski, our on-call family physician. Good morning, Dr. J. Good morning. Well, does this latest phase change anything when it comes to the medical sector? Absolutely. So this is a huge step forward. It's incremental, and we're trying to be very wise about it, but um, everything is one step closer to going back to a much more normal existence, meaning we now can book uh, appointments in clinic uh, if patients are asymptomatic. Elective surgery will start to move forward. Again, if patients have no symptoms and are uh, definitely a COVID-negative story, then we can start trying to do normal things or things that we have been doing prior to the uh, pandemic. What are some of the things, Dr. J, that we have put off? Just to kind of, obviously doctor's office visits have been something that people have not really been doing. So we can get back to that. Other things? Everything elective, in essence. Um, So uh, in regards to uh, examinations, say annual examinations or physicals have been totally put off. Um, uh, Certainly in the hospital uh, situation, uh, anything like all elective surgery, meaning surgery that the, the date is not critical has been complete moratorium on that surgery. There have been nothing happening, and only urgent or emergent surgeries have gone through. So now we are changing that. Now we are scheduling back those routine appointments that have been put on hold essentially for about three months. Um, You know, in clinics, uh, if somebody needed to be seen urgently, we were seeing them. 
um, in, in person. Uh, if somebody didn't, we weren't. Uh, so this transition is, it really shifts that into allowing more and more people to come back um, if they have to, for sure. Glad you mentioned that because we had a texter last week who said you couldn't get into a clinic, but you were there for those patients who had to be seen in person. With elective surgeries, you mentioned the three-month backlog uh, for the clinics. I'm assuming that it's it'll be three months, but probably even longer than that if it was an elective surgery just yeah. to get through and with the oh, new protocols, I would think. Yeah, I mean, I heard uh, the most uh, pessimistic quote I heard was, uh, it'll take a year to get everything back on track entirely. Wow. Um, and I'm not sure that that's true in, in, uh, completely, but it's not simple. Um, you know, a statement like if I had a, a surgery slated um, uh, a year ago for June 15th, uh, do I keep June 15th or do I get bumped to October 15th mm-hmm. and have everyone who was on, in April 15th now get my appointment? So it's just a, it's a nightmaring or scheduling nightmare that has to get sorted out. Um, but I, I hear I've had a couple of patients who actually uh, have been slotted in in uh, Strathmore, High River. So they're using the rural communities to try to get through that backlog a little quicker on uh, elective surgery. So uh, they're being creative, and this is good. We need we need that sort of novel thinking at this point. That we do, and uh, we need to, you doctors to get speedy and get us through there. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we, yes, we do. But it's been good. I mean, if I made any uh, comment, it's a virtual high five so far. Yeah. We took this uh, little step forward good. and nothing bad seems to have come from it. So this is very good. Good news. Thanks so much, Dr. J. Okay, you betcha. That's Dr. Ted Jablonski, our on-call family physician. 619 on the morning news. FedEx has kicked off an initiative that will help alleviate some of the financial pressures on small businesses in Calgary during this very difficult time. Joining us with details is James Anderson, Vice President of Marketing and Corporate Communications with FedEx. Good morning to you, James. Good morning. How are you doing today? Good. Well, I always love it when it's easy to remember because it's a hashtag. So tell us about your hashtag support small initiative and why FedEx has decided to do this. Well, thank you very much for having us on. And and it boils down to a couple things. I don't need to tell any of your listeners we are truly in unprecedented times. And um, the way FedEx is approaching this year is we're taking a look at everything that we do and seeing what we can do to help um, as quickly as possible. And every year we've always ran a small business contest that uh, compared to this year's uh, version is, uh, was a lot more elaborate. We allow businesses to come in, give video presentations, tell us the idea, and you know we would award um, prize money to an idea that would truly bring something unique to Canada and the world. This year, we just know people need help, um, mm-hmm. and it, it's just that simple. So, you know, no pomp and pageantry. Uh, submit your name, um, your business name, um, up until June 30th. We honestly don't care what you're doing with the money. You you know what you're doing best. Uh, we're we're looking at uh, awarding five thousand uh, or five thousand dollars to thirty businesses. So it's pretty much the prize uh, money that we had last year. But we're just making it a lot easier so that. You know, if you need to pay rent, uh, float your payroll, you know, get online and start an e-commerce side of your business. Uh, it's a drop in the bucket, we understand, but we just wanted to deploy the resources we have as quickly as possible for those who need it the most. Hey, $5,000, that could be extremely helpful to a lot of small businesses right now. What are the parameters of those that need to apply or are able to apply for this grant? It's very simple. You know, you've got to be in business for over a year, and we're looking specifically at small businesses. So for companies that have 99 employees or less, and I'll tell you why, uh, 
the Canadian economy is so dependent on small businesses. We need to get this section of, uh, of our economy uh, flowing again. Uh, 98% of all businesses in Canada are actually have 99 employees or less. And in fact, 70% of people who are employed in Canada are actually employed by a small business. So it's a company bond all of us to do what we can to help. And um, yeah, uh, it, it could help pay the bills for that month. Mm-hmm. Um, and we understand there's resources. We understand that there's government support structures, but it only goes so far. So we're doing our part. What I like about this, James, is uh, FedEx is an animal. It's a major company, one of the most recognized brands in the world. And you think that is a real machine of a company. But it goes to show that you guys might be the big guys, but you know your bread and butter. It's those small businesses that keep you hopping. Oh, absolutely. Uh, FedEx is a bellwether. Um, you know, uh, there is not a section of the world where there's uh, we don't know what how the economy is performing because often we're delivering it. Uh, and so, you know, big analysts always turn to us to see how the economy is doing. And so let us be clear, it's small businesses. This is important to us. It's important to Canada and it should be important to all Canadians to do what we can to help these small businesses. People that are put their hopes and dreams and lifetime investment into something. Uh, these are unparalleled times, and to borrow a phrase, we're all in this together. Yeah. James, what's the website to apply? Uh, FedEx.ca slash small business. Thank you so much for joining us. Wonderful what you're doing. Thank you so much. Have a great day. You too. That's James Anderson, VP Marketing and Corporate Communications with FedEx. 919 on your Monday morning and over the past couple of weeks, we've been introducing you to Community Champions, 770 CHQR, along with Calgary Co-op, asking folks to nominate a group, an individual, someone who's gone the extra mile above and beyond during this difficult time. Nominate them to potentially win a $350 gift certificate to Calgary Co-op. And joining us this morning is our latest nominator, Sharon Doig. Hi, Sharon. Hi. Hey, thank you so much for joining us. I love this. I think it's going to touch a lot of people. So tell us about the person and the group that you are nominating as a community champion. Okay. I nominated Christina Byard and the staff at the Southwood Extended Care Center. They are amazing people. And I think that people need to realize just how hard their job is and how great a job they're doing for us as family. So tell us about uh, your your mother, and uh, how long has she been in the home? Uh, she wasn't there. Unfortunately, she died a couple of weeks ago, oh, but no. she wasn't there for very long. But through the COVID part, they were amazing. They, they arranged for us to have an iPad so we could FaceTime with her. Um, they phoned to make extra things for food that she would especially like, things that she could do, and it's one point in time the nurses there sang hymns to her because they it comforted her and so they were singing hymns to her as they took care of her well we're so very sorry for your loss but i think it's it's beautiful that you're nominating the folks who took care of your mom in her last days because i think it's important you're right you know we hear we've heard some horror stories most definitely but there are so many great stories like this one so thank you and tell us a little bit about you know when they they would actually get an ipad so that you could zoom and chat with your mom yes yes they did and then um we my brother and i would visit her at her window and we would phone ahead of time and they would make sure she was there and her phone wasn't cord wasn't long enough so they made arrangements for a new phone cord for her so she could have her phone 
right there by the window so we could, we were on our cell phone, she could be on her phone and talk to us. And they went way above and beyond to make sure that those meetings were good for her. And and it was just so, so nice of them. And they made arrangements for a, a minister to visit her because they couldn't have church there. Mm-hmm. So they had a minister come and visit her. And How old was your mom, Sharon? She was 91. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So I can so, imagine beforehand, uh, knowing that you couldn't visit, there mu- it must have been a great time of stress until you know just how helpful these people were. Oh, they were. And then we would take things to her, and they made sure that they had them there for her. And sometimes they would bring them up to the window so we could see that they had delivered them and uh, get Mom's expression. It was. It was a very hard time. And they just went above and beyond to to make sure that it was the best that they could do. Well, you've touched all of our hearts. Thank you so much for nominating Christina and the folks at the Southwood Care Centre. Thank you for joining us, Sharon. Really appreciate it. Thank you ever so much. I appreciate being able to let you know just how great they all were. And again, our thoughts are with you on the passing of your mom, but thank you for for sharing your community champion with us. Okay, thank you ever so much. That's Sharon Doig and community champion. I mean, great deserving group. Wow. And we, uh, we, we need to give a, a, such a nod to the folks that are on the, the front lines, especially with our seniors at this time. The right? front lines mean so much more than just the nurses and doctors mm-hmm. that we hear so much about as well. Not too late. That was uh, number 10 of the nominees. We have a couple more this week. Still get them in at 770chqr.ca. Look at contests. Scroll down. You'll find community champions. And somebody, not you and I, we don't want to have to go through all these incredible nominees that we've heard so far will mm-hmm. win a $350 gift card to Calgary Co-op again uh, delivered directly to your door with no contact by the 770 CHQR community cruiser powered by Boest Appliance